0: Well, good morning, church. That's not nearly as loud as it is at the second service. I guess if there's anything that I want to do, if I'm going to start preaching at 8 o'clock in the morning, is to make sure the audience is awake. I am having a little bit of voice trouble today. And the only time I ever have voice trouble is when I really need to use it only time in the last couple of years or so that I've ever had voice trouble was this last August I believe it was I was to be in Arkansas and I was, had to I had to speak on Sunday five times and when I got there I couldn't quit coughing um, I stayed awake most of the night trying to figure out um, what am I going how am I going to get through those five lessons when I can't talk so I'm taking all kinds of medicine last night and this morning to keep from coughing and all that. I tell you that because if I happen to go over here and sit down on those pews in a moment and go to sleep, it's not because I have lost interest in the lesson. I don't want to be like the preacher that I heard about one time who dreamed, had this dream that he was preaching, and he woke up. Sure enough, he was. I've known a couple of preachers like that in my lifetime, you know. Griff asked if um, I needed an introduction. I said, no, that um, probably the less they know about me, the better. There is one thing I should tell you about myself, though, that that wasn't that funny, Phil. There is one thing about me, though, that you probably need to know, and that is that I have a title that not too many people here know about that in some areas I am known as the chief hog at the trough. And if you weren't raised on a farm, you won't understand that very well either, but it's, it's good, you know. But I got that because secretary of the church building where I was preaching one time answered the phone, and there was a guy on the other end and said, uh, on the phone, he said, I would like to speak to the chief hog at the trough. And she said, I beg your Pardon? He said, "I would like to speak to the chief hog at the trough." And she said, she finally figured out that he wanted to talk to to me, the preacher. And she said, "Sir," said, "I have you know that uh, that we we called him Don or Brother Humphrey or Mr. Humphrey or Mister or." Or something, but we don't refer to him as the chief hog at the trough. And he said, "Well, said I didn't know what to, what to call him or what to ask for, but said I wanted to talk to somebody about giving fifty thousand dollars to the church." There was this long pause on the other end, and finally the secretary said, "If you hold on just a minute, said I think I hear the big pig himself coming through the door." It kind of stuck. I expect that in every church of Christ pulpit throughout the United States this morning, and every preacher is uh, explaining to the congregation uh, why that there is no special pageant in the Church of Christ there today. And he's explaining why that uh, there is no reason in the world for believing that December the 25th is the birthday of Jesus Christ. And he's explaining to them that, um, that he teaches in the scripture that he wants us to remember his death. And yet, I am fully aware, and I feel the same way, that, uh, that uh, I know where your mind is glued right now and what day that it is. And I'm well aware that if I talk about the birth of Christ today, your attention span will probably be three times as long as it would be in the middle of July or August. So I've decided if your mind is there, then you might as well take advantage of it. And so we're going to talk about um, Luke, the second chapter this morning, and the birth of Jesus Christ. The book of Luke has been described by many people as the most beautiful book that has ever been written. And the second chapter of the book of Luke is probably the best known passage in the Bible. And the story that's in this passage is is old to you and it is familiar to you and you probably know it as well as as I do. I think maybe that the lesson will be more meaningful to you of under those circumstances, that if you'll try to listen to this story as if this is the first time that you've ever heard it. And let's read with me now Luke, the second chapter, and verse 1 through 7 to begin. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Paul, referring to this passage in Galatians, the fourth chapter and verse 4, refers to it as happening in the fullness of time. What he means by that is that the time that Jesus was born was the perfect time for him to be born and that preparations had been made for his birth. And that is being been seen by the fact that the Jewish people had received and they had preserved the knowledge of Jehovah God The Romans, although unknowingly, had made their contribution. The Romans had created a world, a civilization, in which there was a concept of worldwide law and government. And the Roman Empire had made possible for there to be, at this time, one currency and one economic system. They had reduced robbery on the land and piracy on the sea, and they had made Therefore, travel safer for God's preachers. They had built roads to the centers of populations. And those roads today are remembered by the travelers on them and who see them, not because the Romans built them, but because those roads were traveled by the messengers of the cross. I have been to Philippi, and I have stood on a a road that was built by the Romans that was over 2,000 years old. And what I remembered about that road was that this is the road in which the Apostle Paul came to see Lydia and to preach to her and her household and to baptize them. And I remember standing on that road and looking down at realizing that it was down this road that the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions went on to Thessalonica and to Berea and on to Corinth and to Athens. And it was made possible by the Romans building those roads. All the facilities were in place for the spread of the gospel better than at any time in history. And I don't think it's unreasonable to understand that God had raised up the Roman government and the Roman nation in order to make it easier for the spread of the gospel. The Greeks also had made a contribution. They contributed the language. Even though the world was governed by the Romans at that time, the language that was spoken was Greek. And they they furnished the common language of common man throughout the world. More preparation for the spread of the gospel and the coming of Jesus is seen Because we're told that that year of Jesus' birth was the first time in 400 years that there was no war. Now, let's just suppose that you have a a challenge, a problem. You need to convey a message, communicate a message to a colony of ants. And you can see the little colonies of them. You see the ant hills. And, and you've got to communicate a message to those ants. Now, how are you going to go about doing that? As far as I can figure out, the only way in the world to communicate a message to those ants is for you to become an ant. So you can communicate to them your message. What if you were God? And you wanted to communicate a message to man on the planet Earth. The only way to do it would be to send Jesus, the God-man, to communicate that message. Send a a being who was both God and man and who was combining in one personality those two natures. Now Luke begins his, uh, his story by mentioning Caesar Augustus who was the nephew of Julius Caesar, and he was the emperor at that time. He was the most powerful man in the world. Historians say that he was probably the greatest politician that ever lived. He was a man that many Romans believed to be a god. And he intercepted now in time and space the god who became a man. No one ever would have dreamed at that time that he would become just a fact of history where a baby that is born in a remote province in a small village there would become the king of kings and the lord of lords. No one would have dreamed that that little baby born in a small village in a remote corner of one of his provinces would have ever dreamed that time is measured by the when he was born. That anything that happened before he was born is dated backwards. Anything happens after he's born is dated after his birth. And that he was the major influence in the world since his death. Last Thursday night, I was at the Nashville Symphony and listened to Handel's Messiah in one place in Handel's Messiah they played the Hallelujah Chorus and I had a chorus sing it it was very interesting to me to notice that the audience without being told when they started to play Handel's Hallelujah Chorus they all rose out of respect for the subject of that piece of music now I bet if you had questioned the people in that audience even though they were probably a mostly well-educated people that they would not have known who Augustus was the mightiest man of his time now has decided that there will he will have a census and that census will force Mary and Joseph to travel to Bethlehem I don't think it was an accident that this census happened to be at the time that Mary and Joseph were there. I think the Spirit of God was operating in the mind of the emperor and his officials. If Augustus had planned this census for three months earlier or three months later, that would have thrown the plans of God into confusion. And God knew when this baby was to be born. And so he set the machinery in motion to take place at the time that he wanted it. He knew how long it would take the census officials to reach their places of work. It may be appeared that the emperor had ordered this census to create taxes and to raise money. But I think if you look at the scriptures, you would understand that he raised it so that Mary and Joseph would be in Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus. There was a census now all over the Roman Empire because God wanted Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem at that time. Now, Caesar Augustus then has a decree that there has to be a census. And Joseph and Mary who probably was about 14 or 15 years old at this time, have to return to their ancestral home, or at least uh, Joseph's ancestral home of Bethlehem, because that is the birthplace of David, and he is of the lineage of David. Now, in first century Israel, this being in Bethlehem had special significance because in Micah 5 and verse 2, the passage says that it is in Bethlehem that the Messiah will be born. Bethlehem was a village about six miles south of Jerusalem. It would have taken about three days for Mary and Joseph to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem and maybe longer because of Mary's condition. Bethlehem, in appearance, would have been no different than dozens of hills, towns, and villages in Judea. probably had a permanent population of about 300 people. And when they got there, there was no room in the inn for them. It is understandable that the inn would be overcrowded. Returning Jews in the line of David would have been there to register for this census. The officials, the soldiers in charge of the census would have been there. If they were not Jews, no home would have had, allowed them to stay in it. And so they would have to have a place in the public housing quarters. And it is possible that these travelers were camped all over the streets of, uh, of Bethlehem at that time. And the result was that every available place to stay was already taken. Because of probably Mary's urgent condition, she was allowed to have a cave stable. In those days, people didn't, didn't build barns like we do and for our cattle. <coughs> they... Um, their were, caves were too plentiful. Wood was too scarce. And so they would have used a cave for, for their, their animals to stay. And it was there that they gave Mary and Joseph a place to stay. They would have had some straw and a lamp filled with olive oil for light. And it is in such a meager abode as this, is that the Savior of mankind was born into the world. The innkeeper is sometimes cast as a villain in this story, and we shouldn't be too hard on him because he represents us. He was unaware that these were special people. He was unaware that one of the two most earth-shaking events in history is going to take place in his neighborhood. And like millions and millions of other people, he was consumed with activities. He had things to keep him busy. And in the clutter of all of these things, he was so preoccupied that he missed the Son of God. The stable in which Mary and Joseph now were staying was a sheep and donkey corral. It was filthy. It would have been filled and reeked with the manure and urine of animals that accumulated over the centuries, and Joseph would probably have cleared a spot in the corner of it that for Mary to lay down, and... Here, on a date that is lost in antiquity, the single most important birth in history occurred, a never-to-be-repeated event. A virgin will give birth, and most people will never believe it. And here in this stable, Mary, alone, without strangers or friends, to witness her ordeal, and in the darkness gave birth to a son. There was no doctor, no nurse, no anesthesia. Unless there was a midwife available in the village, there was no one to assist her. Their poverty is suggested by the fact that they didn't have any attendants to help and to care for her. And a more lowly and humble place for a birth is impossible to imagine. All Of all the details... That, that um, Luke could have given to us about the birth of Jesus, it is that, that Jesus was put in a manger. Of all the details that he could have given us, he gave us that. Now that speaks volumes, just that one detail to the readers for all over the centuries. If you were to visit Israel today, you could see that a manger like this. This is, this is a manger. It was a piece of stone that was chiseled out so you could put feed in it. It was a, it was a trough for animals to eat out of. The hole at the end of it was the place where they tied the animal and let them eat. And then you put some straw in it, and it will look a little bit like this. What kind of reception? For the Son of God could this be. The great lesson of this all is that the infinite greatness of man of, of God became so little. Another lesson is that all of eternity here is in this little baby child. The lesson is that all the rays of glory is here clothed in what we would call rags and that heaven is crowded into the corner of a stable, and that he who is everywhere and has created the whole universe is wanting for a room to stay. The Jewish people were looking for a king, a Messiah, who would slay their foes and return the nation to prominence. Prominence, But what they got was a little baby that would make its mother cry, and that baby's hands would be small, and curled, but within it would be the grasp of the hope of mankind forever. I've often wondered if Mary ever thought about this passage from Isaiah 7, chapter and verse 14, where Isaiah said, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Mary was holding in her arms Emmanuel, which means God with us. Those soft little hands of that baby that were fashioned by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary were made so that someday nails could be driven through them. Those little feet that were so pink and unable to walk were made so that someday they they would walk and stumble up a dusty hill carrying a cross so they could be nailed to it. And that little sweet infant's head and those eyes and those mouth were formed so that someday a man could could press down a thorn of crowns on it. And that little tender body that was so warm and soft and was wrapped in those cloths was made so that someday it could be ripped apart by a spear. What a humble birth. The Messiah had slipped into the world No fanfare, no palaces, no cradle, wrapped in humble, swaddling clothes. And the only bed that he had was a manger filled with some straw. The only explanation of this is that God had come in a form of a baby. He did do that without forsaking his divine nature or diminishing his deity in any way at all. He was born as as an infant. And his birth marked a moment, a nascence in time of he who had already existed from eternity. In John, the first chapter, in verse 1 through 3, John is beginning to introduce to the Gentiles who Jesus is, and he describes him this way. For in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has has been made. He was God. Sometimes people ask if... If he cried, or if he needed care, if he needed feeding, well, of course he did. He was fully human with all the needs and emotions that were common to mankind. But he was also fully God with all the wisdom and all the power of God. How did he do that? Well, we don't know. But the Bible says it is so. And there's a sense in which he voluntarily suspended the full application of all of his divine attributes so he could be a, a man and be come into this world. Meanwhile, the merchants of Bethlehem were unaware that God had visited their village. The innkeeper was unaware of the fact that he had sent God out into the cold. If people had been told that the Messiah was being held in the arms of a teenage girl in a cave on the the edge of the village, they would have scoffed at it They were too busy to consider the possibility or too busy to care. They didn't miss the arrival of the Messiah because of some evil acts that they had committed or some malice on their part. They missed him because they weren't looking. Little has changed in those 2,000 years, has it? Well, the scene now changes. And there is rejoicing in other quarters. In verse 8 through verse 20, it tells us this about the story. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Luke, the 19th chapter, in verse 40. The Pharisees ask him on what is called his triumphant entry into Jerusalem to keep his people quiet. Jesus' response was that, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It could not be that the birth of the Messiah could go unnoticed. And if Bethlehem would not provide a reception for him, then the angels would... There are some truths, you know, that are just too great. They're too sacred. They're too divine for an impure human mouth to be the first to impart that. These truths need to be reserved for the lips of angels. You remember the triumphant statement of the joy of the resurrection is first made by an angel at the tomb where Jesus was. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, it was an angel that told the people gathered there what they had seen. And so it is that the angels are the first to announce the first message of salvation. Now, who are they going to select to receive this message? Who in Bethlehem is going to be informed of this momentous event? Well, it's going to be some shepherds. In Luke, the second chapter, in verse 8, says, "...there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby." keeping watch over their flocks at night. These words are so famous to us that we've probably lost our fascination about them. The fact that these were shepherds out in the field is nothing. What is something is that there were at that time kings and governors and princes and lawyers and priests and bankers. There were palaces and courts and decision-making conference rooms and big names and influential powers. But the birth of the Messiah was undeclared and unannounced and unnoticed by these people, and the news was given to some shepherds out in the pastures taking care of some sheep. It is surprising to me that such a profound message should be entrusted to shepherds, They could not have been chosen because they were the most important people in the town or the most widely known in business and political circles. They were a despised class. They were outcasts in respectable society. Shepherds' honesty and integrity was questioned so much so that they were not allowed at that time to even be a witness in a court. Maybe the significance of this message given to them was because of the flock that they were guarding. There is good reason to believe that these shepherds were guarding a group of sheep that had been set aside. They were destined for the sacrificial altars of the temple in Jerusalem. And they were watching these sheep, and the Lord had come. The Messiah, whose birth had just been announced to them, one day is going to die at the exact same time that the three o'clock sacrifice is made of sheep like these at the temple in Jerusalem. And then no longer will it be necessary for sheep like the ones they're, they're guarding to die for the sins of people. It is no wonder then that they announce the birth of Jesus to these shepherds. I don't know what Augustus was doing that night. But it's probably something he and everyone with him thought was greatly important. But if an angel had come to him instead of those, those shepherds and said to them, leave all of this alone, it, what you're doing does not matter. There's nothing that matters except that there's a fact that there's a poor woman who has given birth in a stable in one of your providences in the backwater area of your empire, has given birth to a baby. And they would have all thought that some lunatic was playing a joke on their court. The central value here is, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, which is Christ the Lord. In all these shepherds' visit, the birth that has been announced to them, they would have bent over this little infant, unable to foresee the coming events of its life. They would have looked at those tender little feet and not realized that someday they will walk on the rough waters of the Sea of Galilee and they will stumble up a hill carrying a cross to be nailed to it. They might have touched the gentle little hands and not realize that someday those hands will make it possible for blind people to see a blue sky and flowers. And then there would be the voice and the quiet breathing that was so shallow that they could probably barely hear it, not understanding that someday that voice will quell the angry waves of the Sea of Galilee, and that that voice will call out his beloved Lazarus to come forth from a grave where he's been dead for several days. And so, now then, Mary and Joseph go to the temple to make an offering and to present Jesus. We're told that in verses 21 through 24. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. The poorness of these people is seen by the fact that they offered two turtle doves for the cleansing. They're not offering that which is usual a lamb. There they see Simeon and Anna. And they tell them that this is the Messiah. We're going to go on past all of this now. And get to the application. While we still have a moment of time. It is remarkable to me that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and no one in Jerusalem even noticed it. Bethlehem was just a few miles, virtually walking distance from the center of Jerusalem. And Jesus' birth was hardly even noticed there. Everyone in the city missed it. Why did Jerusalem and Israel miss the birth of Jesus? I think the answer is it was religion. Jerusalem was very religious. Jerusalem was the hub of religious activities in Israel. It was there where the temple was and where they made sacrifices. If anyone wanted to make sacrifice, they had to go to Jerusalem. And the people there were so busy with religious rituals that they missed God, they were preoccupied with all of their religiosity, that they missed the whole message of God. They were, in short... Busy worshiping the right God in the wrong way and caught up in all the externals. Jesus didn't fit the Messiah that they were looking for. And he offered a new truth for them. And they couldn't have the ability to see a new truth. Folks, it is as easy to be lost through religion as it is through immorality. Millions today have never heard that Jesus was born centuries ago. They have a right to hear about his coming and his mission. And it cannot be that they have not heard this message that the angels gave to these shepherds that there is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. But the birth of Jesus says that he wants to be your savior. He did God's will to make satisfaction for your sins. Without the birth of God's Son, no one could be born of God. And Jesus will not be born to you unless you are born to this child. The Son of God is not mine to enjoy, to love, to delight in, unless I am the Son of God too. J.B. Phillips gives a an imaginary picture of, of something that happened. He says that there were two angels looking down on the planet earth one day and as they were looked, all of a sudden there was a brilliant light that just filled all the earth and it shone brilliantly light and then it went out. A little bit later it shone brilliant again and then it just separated into thousands of smaller lights that covered the entire planet. One angel said, said, explained to the other one that that first light that you saw, that was the earthly light, life of Jesus. But he was killed, and the light went out. But then he arose from the dead, and when he did... That light was dispersed to many others beginning at Pentecost and eventually it spread in thousands of directions all over the dark continent. And that's how you've heard the message today. Now you understand that Jesus came to you. So now would be a good time for you to come to him while we stand and sing.